It's a tough, tough act to follow, tough word to follow. Hey, I wanna share something with you before we dive in that um, is a memory I had as we sang that I haven't thought about to my knowledge since it happened. It was something that happened, I think, two years ago, year and a half ago or so. And I wanna share with you because I think it's a gift that our Father wants to give to us tonight and in this moment. So I had in my, in my neighborhood in Kansas City, a deli that was always struggling. And you know, they're baking bread, they're making donuts, they're selling Band-Aids, they're, they're doing whatever they can to make ends meet. And COVID came and things got even trickier for them. So I just kind of made a vow. I'm gonna go into this deli as often as I can and buy whatever I can there just to try to support my friend. And stuff got rocky in the world and stuff got actually incredibly rocky in my life personally. And for a long time, I didn't go back to the deli. Now I hadn't made a covenant with the owner of the deli. I hadn't like signed a contract with him. I hadn't pledged that I would come to the deli every day. I was just trying to help somebody out in my neighborhood that I cared about. But enough time had elapsed that I started feeling guilty. I was like, man, how do I even face him again? How do I go back? It's been so long. He's depending on me for support. And finally, I get up the gumption. Maybe I just liked his donuts enough that I went back to the deli and I walked in and I said, with my head kind of low and kicking rocks, I said, hey, Pat, I'm so sorry. It's been months since I've been here. I've, I've had a lot going on in my life, but I know you got a lot going on in your life. There's a lot going on in the world. I'm really sorry, it's been forever since I've been here. He doesn't miss a beat with no condemnation, with no judgment, with no sentimentality, with no smarminess. He locks his eyes on me and with the most kindness I think I've ever experienced in the face of a man, he says to me, you're here now. And just keeps his eyes locked on me. It was an unbelievable gift to me it was transformative to me. What's crazy is I walked out of the deli that day, and I don't know if I've thought about it again until tonight as I stood here and heard your voices bolster mine, and we sang together. And I sensed that your father wanted you to hear from his heart, him saying to you, you're here now. Because my, my guess is, if you're anything like me, you're coming to something like this with um, a list of tangled thoughts and emotions and feelings. You're coming here feeling guilty for what happened in the three hours before you came. You're coming here with your marriage on the brink of falling apart. You're coming here having just lost another job and don't even know how to tell your friends about it. You're coming here feeling like the addiction that you've kept hidden is about to get the best of you. Your father says, you're, you're here now. You're here now. God has gifts for you right here, right now. And it doesn't, doesn't mean that anything in your life before this moment is insignificant. But I just sense through this overwhelming compassion from the heart of God himself for us is, your father wants you to hear from his heart this overwhelming welcome. Hey, put down all your qualifying statements, put down your guilt, put down your shame, 
Stop nursing the cold rage that you carry with you all the time. And just hear God himself say to all of us, you're here now. You're, you're humbly seeking God himself. I realize like none of us do anything completely purely, but you're here ostensibly asking God to meet you, asking God to shape you, asking God to change you. So could you, by God's grace, for just a second, lay all the other stuff down? The guilt, the rage, the anger, the confusion, the embarrassment, the comparison, and just hear God say, you're here now. You're here now. Let me pray for us. Father, I don't know if that strikes these brothers the way it strikes me, but it is weighty. You're the kind of God that runs after scumbag sons that have squandered wealth and goes after lost sheep. You tell us stories to help us understand who you are about widows who have lost a coin. Isn't it fascinating, God, that you own everything in the universe and you tell us stories to explain your heart to us and you're always going after the thing that's far away. You're always strengthening the weak thing, straightening the crooked thing, healing the sick thing, honoring the unexpected thing raising the dead thing. Living God, would you come and host us, speak to us, carve out a time over the next 24 hours where chains that we've picked up in the past and thought we could never let go, you'd actually just vaporize them. Families are changed for the future because of what you do now. Generations of sin and brokenness and dysfunction. By one, by one move of your hand, broken. So would you, would you do that? God, I realize now that Prayer isn't like some magic door we open to come into your presence. We're already in your presence all the time. Your word tells us there's no place we can go to escape your presence. Some days that's good news for us, and some days it's the only thing we wish would stop being true. There's no place that we can go to escape your presence. So prayer, both the prayers that we've prayed before this moment and the prayers that we pray now, not just mine but all of ours, are not asking you to come near because you're far away. You're close all the time. We're asking you to make us aware of your presence. We're asking you to manifest your presence. We're asking you to change us by your presence. And we're asking you to give us eyes to see what you're doing all the time. That's my prayer. God, it's good to be in a room that's full of men. The strength, the potential, the power here is um, palpable. 
but you can do miracles with like little loaves of bread and little fish. So would you take the hearts of a bunch of men and do something with them that we could never fathom? I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, um, my name's Kevin, if we haven't met. Um, if, I, if I look new to you, it's because I am, um, or maybe you're new. And uh, either way, I'd love to meet you if I haven't. I'm honored to be here with you guys, delighted to be here with you tonight. Let me tell you what I want to talk about and why. I read an article several weeks ago from, it was an interview with a pastor. And in this interview, this young pastor that you would never think would talk this way said to this person, I preach all the time, as often as I can in my congregation, about hell. I preach about hell all the time. It was jarring. I was like, that is not what I expected this guy to say. And the interviewer said, why do you preach about hell so often in this moment, in these times to the people you're reaching? And he said, I preach about hell not because I want to make my people weird or not because I want to make my people superstitious or not because I want to make them afraid or not because I want to rattle chains of guilt around them. I preach about hell all the time because I want the people in our church to realize that much is at stake with their lives. He said, I I preach about hell because I want them to realize everything is on the line all the time. This isn't a game. Life matters. Much is on the line. And, And I'm here to talk with you about a biblical vision for manhood for the same reason that that guy preaches about hell. Much is on the line. I believe with all my bones that in this minute, this minute in history, we need to talk about men and talk about women to men and women for the sake of our families, for the sake of the church, for the sake of our city, and for the sake of the world. We need to talk about gendered beings and why God created us this way, not for enmity, but for his glory, not for frustration, but for joy forever. And I think we need to talk about men and women to men and women, and I think we need to talk about men to men. Because the conversation about men is increasingly frustrating, confusing. Listen to this from the philosopher Sam Keane. And by the way, guys, this was written like 30 years ago. Many men feel as if they're involved in a night battle, in a jungle against an unseen foe. Voices from the surrounding darkness shout hostile challenges. Men are too aggressive, too soft, too insensitive, too macho, too power mad, too like little boys, too wimpy, too violent, too obsessed with sex, too detached to care, too busy, too rational, too lost to lead, too dead to feel. Exactly what we're supposed to become is not clear, Sam Keane says. Much is at stake. Much is at stake. Let me tell you what my hope for us tonight and tomorrow is. I want us to hear a word from God. That's my hope. And why would I have smaller desires? God is present. He's not dead. And he is speaking. 
I want us to hear together a word from God. I want us to encounter the life-transforming presence and power of God together. I want us to experience the joy and strengthening realities of male camaraderie. Now, you could do this thing of you could sit here tonight and then maybe gnaw your knuckle tomorrow and decide if you even want to come back because you're looking around comparing yourself to everybody and going, I shouldn't be here. And all of us can do that, by the way. That's a choice. Or we could be strengthened in the presence of other men who are pointed in the same direction we are, flawed and weak and confused, just like we are, and in need of Jesus, just like we are. You could either be confused and comparing, or you could be strengthened. I I hear you guys sing, and I am bolstered. My courage is bolstered. I realize that though much is at stake, there are people that care. I'm praying that you would experience the strength of camaraderie. I'm praying that you would gain a vision for your lives as men in this particular moment. I don't think this is a bad time to be alive. I don't think it's a bad time to be a Christian. And despite what the news may say, I don't think it's a bad time to be a man. I think like God has created us for this moment. You think God's not his knuckle and going, what are we going to do now? Well, how are we going to save men? How, how's the gospel going to go forward? Seems like times are tough. No, like this is a perfect moment to be in Oklahoma right now. This may be dorky, but like if I haven't shown myself to be dorky to you yet, I might as well put all my cards on the table. I, I've prayed for you guys all week and I've thought about Mikey in the Goonies. Like, am I the only Goonies fan in the room? Like, when Mikey makes his bold speech of, this is our time, right here, right now, and if we ride up in Troy's bucket, everything's over. This is our time. I'm like, I I get hype. I hear Mikey talk, and I get hype. I'm like, Goonies, forever. But, But what Mikey's doing in that moment is, he's leading. The youngest kid in the bunch is standing up and being a man. He said, something matters here. This is our time. I'm like, preach, Mikey. I want us to stand up in our time. that's, That's one of my dreams and prayers and desires for us tonight and tomorrow, that God would give you a vision for your life and his work in it where you could stand up and say, brothers, this is our time. Let's do this. Let's walk forward in faithfulness and humility and joy and brokenness and weakness and watch what this dead-raising God can do. It's our time. Maybe it's just my time, but uh, that's, that's my desire. I, I want that vision for you. I want you to gain actionable clarity for how you can walk out of here with clear things to do. Let me say that again, like, I want all of us to leave with actionable clarity, like a vision for biblical masculinity that gives us action statements. What can I do? Now, I say that realizing there's a lot of us in this room that use the what can I do thing as a mechanism to hide so that we never have to actually think and we never have to actually feel. We don't have to make decisions for ourselves. We can just have somebody tell us what to do and we don't ever have to feel all the things we're navigating. We can just say, what do I do? I'm action oriented. And if that's you, I pray that God meets you there. And he gives you something to do. I pray that God gives us all an actionable vision 
moving forward. Hey, listen to this. This is a big prayer, and I'm just going like, to throw a bunch of things on the table because I've spent a lot of time going to, going to the mat for you about it. I'm praying that you experience freedom, that I experience freedom. And here's the kind of things I'm talking about. From the bondage of not knowing who you are or what you're supposed to do. Hey, that is a terrifying feeling. It's crippling, it's isolating, and I'm praying that you find freedom in the presence of God Most High tonight from that. Because it's not a math problem that you have to solve. It's an identity that you receive from God and can walk in, in uncertainty, in fear, in brokenness and weakness. I, I'm praying you get free from the bondage of not knowing who you are and, who, and what to do. I pray we get free from the enmity and confusion that's swarming around the gender conversation. The, the enmity isn't going away, but I pray that we can get free from it, not in a way that makes us want to give the bird to people or cause unnecessary fights, but a kind of freedom that lets us walk in love and patience and humility and confidence, knowing that God himself will win the day. I want, I want you to have that kind of freedom, and it can be yours. I, I, I want you to have freedom from lies that you're telling yourself about God and about yourself all the time. I want God to free us from the prison of isolation where we tell ourselves all the time, nobody understands what I'm going through. I'm the only person that has dealt with this. That is a lie from hell. And God is standing here right now looking you in the eyeballs and saying, you're here now. You want me to take those chains from you? You want me to take those lies from you? You want me to open that prison door for you? Here's the other thing I'm praying. That God will free us from the unhealthy, distracting, destructive, sinful coping mechanisms that each one of us have come up with to navigate the brokenness in our own lives and the brokenness that's been handed to us in our families. Coping mechanisms. I had this vision in my heart as I prayed for us all week long of all these three-legged dogs running around. If you've ever watched a three-legged dog run around, it's, it's pretty awesome. They found a way to make it work for them. But it's not the way a dog's supposed to be. Can I get an amen? I've seen, like, I've seen, um, you know, news spots with dogs that only have two legs that their owners hooked up wheels for them to get around with. And it's like, man, that, that works for them. But it's not how they're supposed to be. Like, all of us in our lives are like people with terrible golf swings. Which if you do the terrible golf swing enough, you can hit the ball okay. It's still a terrible swing. You're still a three-legged dog. You found a way to walk. And you're telling yourself, it works for me. Like, I, I want God to liberate us from those dysfunctional, destructive, sinful coping mechanisms. Some of them come from our own brokenness. Some of them come from the brokenness of others. Some of them come from the brokenness of our fathers. Can we talk about that? The safe place to go? I, I want God to take away from you the awkward coping mechanisms that you've developed in your life that have come from a whole litany of things from your dad. His strength his weakness, his absence, his judgment, his fear, 
his brokenness, his confusion, his shame, and your shame combined with it. Like all of us are walking kind of funny because of things we carry from our dad, glorious things and atrocious, grotesque things. And, and I want God to lovingly point those out to us and show them to us and help us walk a different way. Like restore what's been lost to us so we don't have to walk with that funny hitch and tell ourselves that it's normal walking. That's my goal. You're like, man, lofty goal, right? And what I have to offer you isn't even really impressive. It's just like, here's what God says about who we are. Much, much, much is at stake. Let me tell you what I want us to do tonight. It's pretty straightforward. I want to do three things with you. I want to lay down for you what I believe is a simple, compelling, biblical vision for masculinity. I want us to talk about a biblical vision for masculinity. And then I want to name, secondly, what I perceive to be threats for you functioning, growing, thriving as a man. So I want to lay down a biblical vision of masculinity. I want to name current threats. And then I want to spend some time offering exhortations to you from my heart and from the scriptures for how we can move forward in the midst of these threats and encounter the power of God in the midst of our weakness. That's what I want to do, three things. And I actually want to spend the majority of our time in point one, laying out this biblical vision for masculinity, and in point three, with just us praying together. I'm going to talk way too much tonight, and so I'm going to try to make my talking shorter and us praying longer. Because like when, when you have this kind of power assembled in the room, the thing that I get excited about is letting the men in this room actually do the work of ministry instead of listening to me talk about doing the work of ministry. And instead of spending a lot of time talking about what I perceive to be the threats in your life to walk as a full, wholehearted man, a biblical man, I actually trust that the Spirit of God can make those things clear to you as you hear his word and start to wrestle with what does this mean for me as a man. So I'd rather you name the resistance than me. Is that cool? Okay, are we clear on what I want to do? Both of you are clear on what I want to do? Like it's been a long week, man. Um, stay with me, and I think this is going to be meaningful. And I, I, I over-nuance everything, but I, I feel compelled to tell you guys quickly like four assumptions I'm working from. That way you're not going to go, well, I didn't know you were assuming that. I'm, I'm going to put my assumptions on the table. I'm going to do it really quickly. Assumption number one, I'm assuming that taking notes is helpful for some people. It's not helpful at all for other people. And sometimes in situations like this, it's a bummer. I'm working from that assumption, so I tried to do this thing for you. I made a QR code for you, and in this QR code is, you like that? In this QR code is all the quotes that are going to be on the screen tonight. You can snap it now and deal with it, or you can snap it later. We'll put it back up on the screen at the end of the night. So in those moments where it's like, oh, how am I going to keep this quote? You don't have to worry about it. All the quotes are there for you. And if you're like, well, he said that thing and it's not there, email me and I can put it on there. I'm technologically savvy like that. You should be impressed with me. That's assumption number one. Assumption number two, I'm assuming that everyone here is on a masculine journey. Everyone in this room is on a masculine journey. And I'm also assuming that many of us are in very different places. Some of us are trying to get off the road. 
Some of us have been beat up and are sitting on the side of the road. Some of us have run out of water. Some of us are sprinting ahead thinking we're doing great and we're actually on the wrong path. But all of us are on a masculine journey. And I'm assuming that some, maybe many in this room are not followers of Jesus. So I'm gonna try to respect that as I engage us. But I'm going to the Bible because I believe the Bible has everything we need. Everything we need. Assumption number three. I'm assuming that identity is given. I'm assuming that identity is given. And what I mean, and you might take umbrage with me about this, but that's okay. It's good that I just put my assumptions on the table. Identity cannot be purchased. It cannot be earned. It cannot be self-created through something you or I consume. Identity is given to us. Now, Uh, reputation can be earned, but that's generally weird based on what we do or how we try to navigate our identity. Reputation can be earned. Identity cannot be earned. Identity can be affirmed. That's the role of fathers. That's what we see with blessing in the Old Testament, a father seeing and affirming This is how God's made you. And if you don't have that in a biological father, you're sitting in a room of men who could be spiritual fathers for you. Identity needs to be affirmed, but it cannot be earned. And the affirmation isn't the identity. The affirmation is somebody else pointing and saying, God's done this in you. Identity is a given. That's an assumption for me. Assumption number four, I'm assuming that addressing the right question is of the greatest importance. When we're talking about masculinity, addressing the right question is the most important thing we can do tonight. And what I mean by that is the right question about masculine identity is not, are you a man? It's not, is gender a contrived social construction? It's not, is gender fluid or not? It's not, is gender passing away? It's not, is masculinity toxic? It's not, is masculinity even good. Here's the right question. The right question is not, are you a man or is masculinity good? Because all of you are men and masculinity is good. The right question to answer is, will you steward the masculine energy you have toward the end for which you exist as a man? The question is not, is it good to be a man? The question is, will you use everything that God has made you to be as a man for the purposes that you were created for? That's the question. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And here's what's funny. I told the the guys with my notes that I had four assumptions, but I have five. I lied. Um, I had an assumption that came to me so late this afternoon, I didn't even give it to the people for my notes. But it's so deep, I realized, like, oh, I carry this assumption with me in everything I say, but it's important to say it here, and this this is my final assumption. God, God is the only one who can solve the problems you and I are trying to navigate. He's the only one that can solve the problems you and I are trying to navigate. Your wife can't solve them, your girlfriend can't solve them, your job can't solve them, the gym can't solve them, Jordan Peterson can't solve them, Joe Rogan can't solve them. The only being in the universe that can solve your problems is God himself. That's that's my assumption. So with all my assumptions on the table, let's talk about a biblical view of masculinity. And I gotta hurry. 
Okay, many thoughtful attempts have been made to articulate for us a biblical view of masculinity. I've got a stack of books, and many of them are good. None of them are the Bible, but many of them are good. And we've seen things like Robert Lewis in his work with the four faces of a man to talk about the masculine soul in terms of king, warrior, lover, sage. I think those are important categories for masculinity, but that's not what we're going to talk about tonight. John Piper, in his book that he edited with a gang of other scholars and pastors called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, he gives us succinct definitions of masculinity and femininity that I think are worth naming here tonight. And I'm just going to read them here with you. Piper says, at the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. And at the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. So much there, and so much of it is helpful. But it's not what we're going to get into tonight. I want to share with you what I think is the most helpful articulation of a biblical view of masculinity that I found, and this comes from William Mouser in his book, Five Aspects of a Man. So I just want to walk through these five aspects with you tonight. I'll name them for you, and then we'll walk through each one of them. Here's the five aspects of a man. Aspect number one, man is Lord of creation. Man is husbandman. Man is savior. Man is sage. And man is glory of God. Man is Lord of creation, husbandman, savior, sage, glory of God. So let's get through each of them. We've got a lot of work to do. Look at, with me at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. If you've got a Bible, open there. It's on like page 2 of your Bible. It should be on the screen for you. And, and, and listen to what the, the Lord God says here because this is critical for us. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He's telling us something beautiful here, not playing weird current contemporary games with pronouns. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Pay attention because God's given us instructions. This is about who you and I are and what we're supposed to do. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created man and woman in his image, right, Male and female together reflect the glory of God. So when we talk about a biblical vision of masculinity, we have to say, hey, we function in a sexually dimorphic, complementary relationship to another gendered being that is women, and we need to navigate what that means for us. But at the foundation of our humanity in the image of God, God tasks us with a mission that we share together with women. Do you get that? 
This isn't like, hey, let's get all the boys together and find ways that we could subjugate and mistreat the women. If you understand a biblical vision of masculinity, it means we need to find out how we can lubricate the relationships between male and female because God has given us a job to do together. We have a job to do together. As man, you are Lord of creation. But when the mousers unpacked five aspects of woman, woman is mistress of her domain. Because we share this concept of vice regency. God says, hey, I'm appointing you as representative kings. You're going to do my work in the earth. You're going to subdue, which that doesn't mean dominate. It means bring order to. See, a Lord brings order to something. A Lord brings blessing and boundary and um, like rule and government to something. And God says, hey, the first thing you need to understand about your life as a man is the same thing women need to understand about their lives is we bear the image of God in such a way that he's told us to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth and bring order to it as his vice regents. What we see from the foundation of creation is that God created men and women to do something together to do something. Now check this out. We have capability from God. We have authority from God. We have responsibility for realms from God. And we have accountability to God. Hear this again because when, when, when we're talking about man as Lord of creation, we're talking about capability and capacity from God, authority from God, responsibility to bring order and subdue realms, not just geographic bounded places, but relationships and families and households, and accountability to God. Now check this out. In our fallen state, we abuse the authority, we abandon the authority, we abdicate the authority, and we judge the realms of others instead of taking responsibility for our own. God has created us to operate as his vice regents. And we say, nah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sidestep that responsibility. I'm gonna use my capabilities and capacities for my blessing instead of subduing the earth and blessing it around me. And I'm gonna use the faculties of intellect you've given me instead of bring order to a realm, I'm going to judge the ways in which he's failing to bring order to his realm. That's sin. And isn't it fascinating that we see the, the lordship of creation manifest among us in abdication, abuse, criticism. And we fail to take responsibility for what's in our world because I can perfectly see how you're failing to do what's in your world. It was interesting, I had a good friend in college. And this friend lived with a guy that both of us respected the mess out of. He wanted this guy to invest in his life. He wanted to be like this guy. And so he's always saying to this guy, he's renting a room in his house. Hey, Jerry, will you disciple me? Hey, Jerry, will you invest in me? And this guy says all the time, man, I'd be really interested to have that conversation with you. You should make your bed and we'll talk about it. 
He's like, who does he think he is? He's so self-righteous. I pay rent here. I mean, this guy doesn't see what I see about his yard. Then he asks him again, hey, Jerry, will you disciple me? Will you invest in me in Jerry's bill? I would love to have that conversation with you. You should make your bed. He's telling me afterwards, he's like, man, I'm, I'm not like Jerry. I don't make my bed. I, I live more comfortable. I mean, blah, blah, blah. What Jerry's saying is, hey, man, you have a small domain in this world. You're a college kid. You have a tiny realm. You should learn how to care for that realm. And then I'd love to help you think about how to expand that realm and steward your gifting, your capability, your responsibility for other people. But he didn't get it. It's, it's why Jordan Peterson says to make your bed, right? Make your bed or clean your room before you try to solve other people's problems because God has given you a realm to function in. And if we take up and let him redeem the faculties he's given us, we can start with the smallest things around us and bring blessing and order and joy to everything he's tasked us as lords of creation. That's how he's made us, man. God created us as aggressive and adventurous for a reason, he, for good purposes. He, he, didn't, he didn't make us aggressive and adventurous to compete with one another and to contend with one another. He made us aggressive and adventurous so we could expand the boundaries of the Garden of Eden to the ends of the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the point of creation. That's the point of what me and you were supposed to do. Man, I gotta hurry. I got, I got how much time do I have tonight, Charlie? Up to what? Hey, let me ask you a question tonight for real. What are your realms? What are the realms God's given you to steward, to subdue, to rule, to bring order to? Let me jumpstart your brain if you need some help. Your body, your talents, your friends, your finances, your possessions, your job, your volunteer responsibilities. If you're married, your marriage, if you have children, your family, every opportunity you encounter is a resource committed to you by God to be ruled and made fruitful for God. Men should be adventurous and strategic, and we should raise sons to do the same. And we should raise daughters that appreciate that and understand that and can not only respond rightly to it, but can call men up to be men in right ways. I realize every day, man, I'm getting older and older and the things that I think are cool are 20 years ago. But if you were ever into slam poetry, to hear Cheryl Salt James Ray from Salt and Peppa fame read her poem, we follow your lead. I linked it on the QR code for you because I'm hip <laughs> like that. Hey, at each, at the end of each, at the end of each masculine characteristic, I want to ask you questions. And I want you to like engage these with the whole essence of your being. You can write them down or you can just like trust that the Spirit of God will bring to mind later what you need to do. But here's some actionable stuff for you. Think about one element in your personal realm of responsibility. One element, just one element in your personal realm of responsibility. Where do you struggle there with abandoning responsibilities, abusing authority, abdicating capability? How could shame, despair, resignation, abdication, abandoning, 
affect your posture there? What do you want to change in just that one part of that one realm? What do you, what do you want to see God do in you in that place? What would fruitfulness and productivity look like there? What would it look like if instead of abdicating your responsibilities as Lord of that realm, you stewarded all the gifts God had given you to make it productive, to make it fruitful? What do you need from other men to help you there? Okay, man was created not only to discover and conquer new worlds, but also to make those worlds flourish. So aspect number two of biblical masculinity is husbandmen. Now, I've got on the screen for you Genesis 2, 5 to 8, and 15. I'm not going to read it all because we've got a lot to do in terms of time. The point is, as God created the earth, we see um, a lack of cultivation in the earth. And God appoints man to work and to keep the garden. Look at verse 15 and look at verse 8. He, he puts man in the garden to work the ground and to keep it. Work implies cultivation. Keeping implies preservation, storing up, maintaining something, finishing it. Which, by the way, this same language of working and keeping is used throughout the Old Testament to describe what the priests did in the temple. Not just what people do in a garden. This is culture making God is doing here. So aspect number two of your masculine identity is God has made you as a husbandman. Meaning he's appointed you to work and to keep. To take the realm in which he's placed you and to bring life there that didn't exist previously. Not just to steward what did exist, but to bring to life things that didn't exist through cultivation. But in our fallenness, again, man, we flee from our calling and we abuse our strength. God has called us to be cultivators and at work and in the world, we consume instead of cultivate. And I'll steal from you instead of create for you. I'll contend with you instead of tend for you. Hey, specifically in relationship with women, think about how God has called us as husbandmen to work and keep the glorious relationship of male and female and marriage and think about how we abandon and abuse that aspect of our masculine identity with women. We pursue gullible, pliable women to take advantage of sexually. We indulge in pornography where we can consume outside of covenant. We can consume with no responsibilities. We can be God for the person looking at us in the screen without cultivating, working, tending, keeping anything. We, we can believe the lie that good sex can be bought instead of good sex is cultivated. But God sent Jesus into our world to redeem the husbandman aspect of our masculinity. So instead of abusing women and abdicating our responsibilities, we can steward we can cultivate, we can tend. The redeemed husbandman, I can't say that word. It's a cool word, husbandman. I mean, maybe it's not a cool word, maybe that's why I can't say it. The redeemed husbandman is patient, careful, and hardworking. I mean, when you hear that, 
Don't you want to be that man? Patient, careful, hardworking. The world needs those kind of men. Don't you want to be that man? Don't you want to say, hey, God, this is how you've created me. Would you enable me by your grace to to step into how you've made me instead of shirking how you've made me? So here's my question for you. Everyone in this room, consider an area at work or in your neighborhood that you could develop or improve. Where's something in your life that you could cultivate? Relationships, friendships, service. What would that look like? What would that require from you? Where might your own selfishness, insecurity, fear of failure, feel of fear of looking like you don't know what you're doing, create resistance there? And hey, what if you could, in faith right now, envision that resistance in you? Resistance of selfishness? Resistance of fear? I know what it's like to not want to look like I don't know what I'm doing. What if you could envision holding that in your hands right now and offering that to God? God, will you take this from me right now? Will you take my fear and let me, by your grace, walk in faithful masculinity as a husbandman, married men? Consider one place where you would like to see your wife grow and flourish. Consider one place where you would like to see your wife grow and flourish. And now ask yourself this hard question. What growth is required in you to help her do that? Aspect number one, Lord of creation. Aspect number two, husbandman. Aspect number three, savior. An element of your masculinity, the way in which God has created and wired you is, you are a savior. A savior saves. A savior sees danger, sees peril, sees an object of his love in risk and says, I will go after them. Now maybe savior is weird to you. I thought about like sidestepping Mouser and using the word warrior instead. But the problem with the warrior is warriors fight for all manner of causes. And the essence of a savior is a savior fights against evil for a righteous cause. I don't want to just see warriors. I want to see you living into the fullness of your life as a man and living as a savior. A savior sees something or someone in peril. They embrace a conflict with evil. They're willing to risk their own comfort, safety, resources, even their lives to oppose evil, to rescue the thing you value from harm. Guess what? That's what God did with you. God is ultimate savior in the living man, Jesus Christ. But because of the fall and because of our moral corruption, we act like fallen saviors, corrupt saviors. We wage war against what's good rather than opposing what's evil. We work for personal, we fight for personal gain instead of fighting at the personal risk. We engage in battle until we destroy ourselves rather than rescue another person. And the corrupted elements of our masculine saviorness are abuse and abandonment. God has, God has made us to be the kind of people that run into the fire to risk life and limb to save what's valuable. But instead, 
we save our own necks. Cowardice is the most manifesting fruit of fallen saviors. And, and listen to this statement from Mouser. It's funny that you have a man whose name is Mouse talking about boldness and strength. It just dawned on me. And man, this, this just cuts my knees out from under me. Cowardice is a peculiarly masculine failure. Not because a man might be afraid. Even Jesus prayed that this cup might pass by him. Jesus was afraid. But because cowards' fear makes him shrink from what's right to do. Cowardice is found more often within the confines of a family home, and I would add a church, than on a battlefield. I'm going to read that again because you need to hear that. I need to hear that. No one's signing up for war that's a coward. You know where cowardice manifests itself? In your living room. In your community group. Cowardice is found far more often within the confines of a family home than on a battlefield. Fear of a fight will even confound a fallen savior's understanding of what's good and bad. A man who fears to fight easily rationalizes away the menace of an enemy. It's not really that bad, he will think. There are two sides or more to everything, he believes. And, and that's what we do. Instead of saying, this is right and this is wrong, and I'm not perfect and I don't have all the answers, but I will risk my safety, I will risk my reputation to fight for what's good and noble and true and beautiful. That's what God made you to do. And you shouldn't fear any cultural nomenclature that could be cast upon you. Like, well, I don't want to call, what if they call me this? What if they call you that? Like, what if they call you that? What, what is the right thing to do? And how has God made us to function? And what would that look like for us to navigate? I mean, I've got Genesis 3.15 up here for you because this is the gospel. This is the origin language. This is the first place we hear talk of a Savior coming as God is cursing the man and the woman and the serpent for the original rebellion in Eden. Man, there's tons of theology I want to unpack there. There's tons of pastoral application I want to make there. There's tons of gender dynamics I want to unpack there. But the thing I want you to see is God tells us from the moment he curses humanity because of our rebellion that the seed of the woman will be the one to crush the serpent. Here is the great Savior of all people prophesied for us in the fall. I once heard a pastor summarize the whole Bible like this. Kill the dragon get the girl. What, what's, the, what's the entirety of the scripture? Kill the dragon, get the girl. And as God redeems you and me to function not perfectly, not sinlessly, but as redeemed men, the redeemed Savior knows that the evil that the true Savior, the Messiah himself, has overcome, and therefore we're humbled because of that. And instead of abdicating or powering over people, we, we're humble, we're joyful, we're serious, we're sober. We know that the battle we fight is not against flesh and blood. We put on the full armor of God and we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. I gave you guys Ephesians 6, 12 and 13, or 6, 12 to 17, because I, I want to unpack all of it, but I don't have time. So let's review. Aspect number one, Lord of creation. Aspect number two, husbandman. Aspect number three, savior. Aspect number four, sage. I've got Proverbs 4, 1 to 5 here. Brothers, Proverbs is written by men, to men, for men. Did you know that? 
Proverbs is written by men, to men, for men. You want to know, I mean, how do I navigate being a man? Dedicate your life to reading Proverbs. And isn't God funny that he's given you one a day you can read on the calendar? It's not even tricky. <laughs> I don't, Pastor, I don't know what verse in the Bible to read. What is today? Uh, January 6th, read Proverbs 6. There you go. What, what am I supposed to do tomorrow? I don't know. What will the day on your calendar be tomorrow? Seven. Read Proverbs 7 incredible. Hey, it never gets old. It's God's word to you. And it's not like because it's written to men, by men, for men, that there's no benefit to women. And do you realize that the two of the supreme feminine archetypes are in the book of Proverbs? Lady wisdom calls out to men in Proverbs 1 to 9, and the wife of noble character <coughs> is in Proverbs 31. The sage, as God has created him, is trained by wiser men, matures in wisdom, and takes his place among the community of men. That's what my, my passage of Proverbs 4 is about. Get wisdom. It's like, wait a minute, I, I, I can grow in wisdom. I can take my place among a community of men, functioning as a community of wisdom, and I can ask wiser men to help me. Wisdom is a skill in living. I had people tell me when I was a little kid that knowledge was knowing that a tomato was a fruit and wisdom was not putting a tomato in fruit salad. But I don't think that's correct, actually. <laughs> because wisdom requires love. Wisdom is the loving application of wisdom. And as far as I know, putting a tomato in a fruit salad or not putting a tomato in a fruit salad has nothing to do with love. Wisdom is the loving, the loving application of knowledge. And here's the thing, brothers. We are not born wise. We're not born wise. Some of you are born strong. Man, I have memories of like kids in elementary school. They're like seven years old and have six packs. I, I don't understand those people to those, this day. They could do pull-ups in kindergarten. I've, I've done like four pull-ups total in my life. You can be born with muscles. You're not born with wisdom. No one's born with wisdom. You're born with the capacity to become wise. Look at Proverbs 14, verse 15. You can just jot that down and look at it later. Look at Proverbs chapter 27, verse 12. Because men without wisdom are what Solomon calls simple. Now here's the thing. If the simple refuse to take on wisdom, if the simple refuse to tether themselves to wiser men and gain wisdom and get wisdom at any cost. If the simple refuse to function among the community of the wise, they become a fool. That's biblical. If the simple refuse to get wisdom, they become a fool. Fools are dangerous and harmful to themselves and those around them. And fools ultimately destroy themselves by their own folly. But see, God didn't design you to be a fool. God designed you and me to live in a community of wisdom that blesses, leads, and guides those around us. He called us to be sages. And, and, and lady wisdom is in the beginning of this passage. Here's, here's my questions for you. Other than your father, can you identify a man older than you whose intervention in your life made you more mature and more, more successful? Can you name another man in your life, that his intervention in your life has made you more wise and more successful. 
Can you think about a man in your life right now that you could reach out to tonight, tomorrow, and ask him, hey, will you help me grow in wisdom? Could you write his name down now? Could you have the courage to text it to a friend when you get home? Hey, this is the guy I wanna ask. And before the weekend ends, could you take a formal step to reach out and ask someone else, would you help me grow in wisdom? Hey brothers, maybe there's someone that you need to grab around you that's simple. And you can speak the truth in love to him and say, hey, you are gifted, you are strong, you're a powerful man, but you lack wisdom. And I would love to serve you and help you grow as a man by investing in you and helping you understand what the loving application of knowledge would look like in your life. Maybe tonight is a night where you stop just sitting back on all the investments and deposits that have been made in you. And maybe tonight is the night you say, I'm gonna call him tomorrow. Get him around your dinner table once a week. Lift weights with him three times a week. Ask him hard questions and share with him the lessons that someone else loved you enough to impart to you. Lord of creation. Oh man, I've I've been going hard. Lord of creation, husbandman, savior, sage, fifth and finally, glory of God. You're like, man, this sounds weird. Well, look at Psalm 8, 3 to 5 with me. We're going to read these two verses, these two passages. Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. God's word says that you are crowned with glory and honor, that you bear in yourself the glory of God. It's an aspect of how God's made you as a man. <coughs> Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7. By the way, this is one of the weirdest passages in all of 1 Corinthians. We'll get there in a minute. Um, Paul says, for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now, Paul does not explain, explain what this phrase means. I have a lot of thoughts on it, but I think if we look at the Old Testament, we see a pattern and understand that Paul is using an idiom, or he's using a logical arrangement to make a point. So here's a couple of scriptures you can jot down and look at later if you want. Proverbs 17, 6 says, the glory of children is their father. Proverbs 20, 29 says, the glory of young men is their strength. Psalm 49, 16, and 17 says, the glory of a rich man is his wealth. Isaiah 60, 13 says, the glory of Lebanon is cypress trees. The point that's being made in this phraseology is one thing is the source or renown of fame for another thing, or one thing is a distinguishing characteristic of the feature of another thing. So when, when God's word says to you that you bear in yourselves the glory of God, or that you are, man is the glory of God, he's saying that you are a source of renown, that something about God is characteristic in you, and you bear his image so that people can look at you and see that in the same way that a man's riches are his glory, you are the glory of God. 
You're not just like meat. You're not just ones and zeros arranged in a flesh bag. You are the glory of God. Here's ways that men show forth the glory of God. As servants, as warriors, as kings, as fathers, as husbands, as mechanics, as drywallers, as roughnecks, as priests. Do you understand? Like, you just standing is bearing forth the image of the glory of God. There's this famous story, I don't know if it's apocryphal or if it's true, but there's this famous story where C.S. Lewis was either in close proximity to or met Hitler. And afterwards someone said, dear God, you met Hitler? What did he look like? And Lewis's response was, he looked like every man. That is, he looked like Christ. Even Hitler bears in his body the glory of God. So the question is, are we going to renounce his glory and besmirch his glory in our fallenness? Are we going to look to Jesus and ask Jesus, hey, instead of me inflating my pride and setting myself up as God, would you redeem me, restore me, so that I can rightly bear the glory of God? And redeemed, well, let me say this really quickly. Fallen man in the glory aspect rejects your masculine roles, perverts your masculine nature, and worships yourself instead of being an image of the God who is alone to be worshiped. You pervert your nature, you abandon your glory, and you worship yourself. Redeemed man in his glory loves women with character and sacrifice, loves men for the glory they display in and of themselves, not for what they can give him, and loves Jesus as the head of all men. So here's my question for you. This week, how could you use your masculine glory to strengthen another person? How could you use your masculine glory to strengthen another person? What do you need from God to do that? I want to talk quickly, as if I haven't been like the Micro Machines man already. I want to talk quickly about just some threats that I see for you and me right now. I'm not even talking about let me describe global trends or stuff in the West or in America or in Oklahoma. No, I'm just talking to you. I'm talking to you and I'm talking to me. Here's real threats that I see for us as men growing and flourishing. There's four of them. Paganism. I'm going to unpack them quickly. Paganism, lovelessness, fear, and force. I'm going to say it again. Paganism, lovelessness, fear, and force. Hey, what most threatens your life as a biblical man right now? Paganism, lovelessness, fear, and force. When I say paganism, I mean a worldview that actually orients the universe around you and your glory instead of God and his. Even if you use biblical language to do that, I increasingly see us 
in the church, acting as if this world is a music video about us. It's paganism. It's paganism. As, a, as an orientation, as a disposition, we see the heaviest thing in the universe, like we are the beach ball in the center of the universe. We're the bowling ball in the mattress. Everything rolls to us. That's pagan. It's humanistic, it's whatever else you want to call it. And all the theories and isms and ideologies of control that we build, those things keep us from bearing the full glory that God has intended us to carry as men. For some of us, it's a pagan worldview, and for some of us, it's pagan pursuits. And by pagan pursuits, I mean like, if an alien watched your life for just a day, what would they jot in their notebook or tell their friends about what they think you believe gives you strength, power, significance, joy, and purpose? Would they hear you pray? Would they see you open the scriptures and say, God, would you orient me around you? My tendency is to orient everything around me. Would you orient me around you? Would you make sense of me according to you? Would they see you do that? Or would they see you orient your life around a phone and what we can consume and who we can use and who we can manipulate? Paganism. Number two, lovelessness. Man, I've been struck with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13, where three times he says, if I can do all this stuff, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or cinder. If I can do all this stuff, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. If I can do all this stuff, but I don't have love, I am nothing. (coughs) I think about the degree to which we try to do things right, we try to move the right balls in the right directions. We try to get the answers correct, but we're not motivated and animated by love. And I don't just mean us trying to be loving to other people. I mean us understanding that the central glorious reality in all the universe is the love of God. It's the love of God. And it's cool if you had 1 Corinthians 13 read at your wedding, but 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is all about God and his church and how love functions within his body. And lovelessness is the great sin of humanity. And lovelessness flows out of a failure to receive love from God himself. I would guess the vast majority of you haven't met my wife. We're new here. But she prays for you guys like crazy. And my wife, more than anything else, wants to be a part of a church that's characterized by and led by strong, loving men. You know what she said to me yesterday with tears in her eyes? Kev, I don't care what you talk about. I don't care what you tell them. I don't care how long you blather about. Please tell them about the love of God for them. Tell them their father loves them. Tell them their father loves them. Tell them their father loves them because, brothers, if we don't believe that, we're not going to function in our masculine strength and masculine glory. We're going to be trying to earn something and prove something and pretend something and fight for something and defend for something instead of receiving something and walking in it. And listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. This rocks my world. Man, it rocks my world. 
sorry, not 17 and 18, 7 and 8. 1 Peter 4, 7 and 8. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, above all, more important than everything else, Peter says, above all. That's a big phrase in the Bible. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Do you want me to tell you how we navigate in the context of the church each one of our own masculine failures and our feminine counterparts are their failures and fallenness. Love. Love. Above all, Peter says, love one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Man, I don't want us to be robbed by lovelessness. I don't want us to be robbed by fear. Jot down 1 John chapter 4 and see in your in your own time, that fear and love go in two opposite directions. You can either walk in the way of love or you can walk in the way of fear. You cannot have both. And hey, God knows you're afraid. You know how I know he knows you're afraid? And you know how I know he knows I'm afraid? He tells us in the Bible more than anything else, don't be afraid. He's, I, I haven't found a single chapter and verse. I mean, I've studied the Bible a lot. Maybe you guys can you know, tell me better, or maybe you've read the Greek or something. I've never seen a place in the Bible that says, like, don't levitate or don't do triple backflips flat-footed. Never seen that. I, I don't, I'm not prone to that, N- nor are you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear makes us protective, and fear puts us in a position where we're telling God how things are instead of faithfully receiving from God how they are. Fear tells God, you can't do this. This can't happen. This isn't the way it is. Faith says, hey, God, will you show me what's true? Hey, God, will you show me what you're doing? This seems oppressive. This seems broken. This seems wrong. I trust you. God, will you show me how to navigate this with love? Will you show me how to navigate this with love? Paganism, lovelessness, fear, force. Man, one of the hardest lessons I've learned in my life is the difference between force and power. Has anyone ever talked to you about the difference between force and power? Let me ask you a question. Have any of you ever stripped a bolt with a crescent wrench? Force. I remember several years ago, I was demoing a house, and I'm good at demo, let me just say. I don't mean to brag, I'm just speaking honestly. I can't miter a joint to save my life. I can't put things back together. I can demo with skill, surgical precision. If you need me to come demo at your house, I mean, I can cut things blind with a sawzall that would impress you. I'm good at demolition, very good at it. We cut out this flooring, we've done all this stuff, and I'm surveying my work, and I'm proud of my work, and a buddy comes over to help me put in a new subfloor, and he's measuring twice, three times, four times, five times, and I'm like, hey, man, let's just do that and see what happens. He's like, no, no, hey, we gotta do this correctly. <laughs> he's pulling tape. He's dry fitting. Like, words like dry fitting are not in my vocabulary. It's not how I function. Sawzall, not dry fitting. <laughs> Cuts the subfloor. He's working it, and he lays it out, and it just won't quite fit. Bathroom subfloor. Do <laughs> what I do. Bows it, cracks it, and he's like, brilliant, dude. Now all your tile's going to crack. Force. That's force. You know what real power is? Real power is the loving application of strength at the point of relationship. It's the difference of a socket wrench and a crescent wrench. Relationship. 
real strength, lovingly, strategically, skillfully applied. Brothers, the, the danger for you and me to apply force to every situation we encounter instead of true power plagues us and crouches at our door every day. We treat relationships like I treated that sub floor. Just stomp it down and make it work. That's not loving. That's not wise. That's not you functioning as the Lord of the realm God has placed you in. That's not you functioning as a true redeemed husbandman. That's not you functioning as a savior. That's not you functioning as a sage. That's not you manifesting the glory of God. What would it look like for all of us to live our lives standing in all the fullness that God has made us with real power, real strength, not shunning it, not aw-shucksing it, not hiding, standing in real strength and saying, here's the loving relational way we move in strength. That is power and the world cries out for it. The world cries out for it. Force is on every corner and force sells and force is sexy and force gets elected president. The world needs power. God has created you and me to be manifestations of his glory, living truly powerful lives, loving lives, religious lives in the truest sense of the word. Let's pray. God, I see so much potential in the room and I want to just like go deeper, go harder, go faster. I want to stay up till midnight. <laughs> and I, I realize many of these men probably feel like Eutychus in Acts about to fall asleep and fall out a window. The room is hot, the day is long, and we are weary. But I ask now, Spirit of the living God, that you would give us um, a second wind to respond to you now. That we would take all the mass of data that was thrown at us and, and not throw it away, but set it down and say, in light of just a few things I can take and know, God, what do you want from me right now? There are things that the Spirit of God wants to give to you tonight, right now. If you're, if you're like the honest child at Christmas, saying this is, what I, this is what I want my father to give me, what's the thing that you want your father to give you? Do you have the courage to ask for that tonight? To actually ask your father to give you that? And I'm not talking about like a toy or a boat or more money. I'm talking about something inside of you. Something that you know you lack. Would you be willing to ask your father to give that to you? Is there something that you're carrying right now that you want to relinquish and renounce? Maybe tonight God wants you to give that to him, to lay it down. What we're going to do now is we're just going to stand. We're going to invite the Spirit of God to minister to us. Would you do that with me? Would you stand? Hey, brothers, this is the moment that lots of people men and women in our body, across our state, and even across the country have prayed for this moment for weeks, that the Spirit of God would move, that He would heal, He would restore, He would set free, He would liberate, He would increase in you things you long to see increased. He would heal in you things that you've 
given up hope that he can. So I'm just going to pray and ask him to move. Will's going to sing, and we've got uh, John and Josh and I and, uh, and others are just going to maybe extend invitations for you to respond. But I'm, I'm going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to come. And then if, you, if something's burning in your heart right now that you say, I don't need you to ask me to respond. I want to respond. I'm going to ask you to do something brave and move your body and put, your, put yourself on display. Not to say, look at me, but to say, hey, I'm going to risk something and ask God to move in me and meet me. And we'll just have people meet you up front and pray for you right here. So I'm going to pray now, and you, you can come forward. If that's you, if the Spirit of God is burning something inside you, like, man, I want to give that to God. I want God to give this to me. I want to grow here. I want to change here. Like, this is the moment for me. Come. Ask God to do that now. So Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would keep doing what you have been doing. I ask that you would move men. I ask that we would see courage increase in the room. Spirit of God, would you release gifts in the room? There are people that have had dreams for you, brothers, for weeks of seeing God move in you. So God, I just ask that you would awaken courage right now, and that you would release the prayers of the saints, and you would enable us as brothers to pray for one another, and Spirit of God, that we would give the gifts of the Father to one another. So Holy Spirit, would you give us gifts to dispense to your people for your glory? Awaken worship and healing in us now, I ask in Jesus' name. If you want to respond to the Lord and you want someone to pray for you, come now.